A uh, couple things as we begin. Uh, first off, Christmas for kids is, is it next? No, two weeks, two weeks away. The 6th, December 6th. And so they're looking still for donations to help take care of all these kids. If you're willing to do that and you want to give something, there's envelopes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, today, our agape is going on at 5 o'clock, and so you should all come back, eat dinner, hang around the big fire pits. We're going to be outside, bring your kids. Everybody's going to be together, okay? We'll have three pits, so if it's like that's the noisy kid pit, you can move to another one, all right? You are first service. I get it. All right. So uh, there are three fire pits out there, so you can go to you know different pits if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eric Moran's right there is doing one of the fire pits tonight, so he's going to be, yay, way to go. Uh, and, and so j- just come. It'll be, it'll be a whole lot of fun getting to know some other people. Bring, bring a hoodie and some earmuffs if it's too cold for you, but just come and hang out. It'll be great. Uh, and if you brought, if you, if you took a tin for some food, bring that about 4.50 so they can start getting that ready because we're always element time. We're always late. And December 13th is the Planting Roots Rummage Sale. So if you have some stuff, not like your old underwear, but something we could actually sell, uh, you can donate that and bring it. Uh, sign up in the back if you want an email to tell you when you can drop stuff off or if you just want to help. Because I know some of you ladies are like, it's the funnest thing in the world to go through other people's stuff. We will let you. Okay? And you can price it and tag it and do all that stuff. It'll be wonderful for you. Also on the 13th, or what I understand, Russ is planning another motorcycle ride. So if you want to go on a winter ride, uh, we're looking apparently at doing that. So we'll give you information over the next couple of weeks as we get closer to that. Once you stay on the reading of God's word, we'll get started. This is like your one verse out of the Sermon on the Mount today. This is Matthew 7, 17. And Jesus says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Let's pray. Thought of this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to walk in your grace and goodness humbly, uh, to trust you as you have revealed yourself, and that we would be a people who live in that revealed will of who you are. Uh, amen. Have a seat. All right, so we were in the Sermon on the Mount. This is week 41. Uh, we have spent this entire year in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. So we can... We can Elements like that. We just kind of run on forever on, on certain things. But this is one of the things Jesus spent the most time teaching. So we seem to spend a lot of time in that. Now, towards the end of the section of Matthew, Matthew 7, we get to this thing where Jesus starts talking, talking about good and bad fruit, these trees and, and what they bear. And he's kind of talking about these people who come into churches and they preach some very, very bad doctrine. So he talks about, you know, how to identify them and the fruit that they bear. And so we've been having fun with this about four weeks, when we, by the time we end this, four weeks of looking at different heretics and the early church, what they taught, how some of their beliefs still influence the church today. Uh, I've given you guys a lot of history. I was talking to one of my friends last week after third service, and I said, am I just boring everybody? He goes, it's a lot of history. And I'm like, but is, he goes, it's okay. He goes, it's just a lot of history. So, sorry, I'm giving you like Theology 101 and history lessons, and, and I'm hope, I, I, mean, I have sometimes have a hard time making all this stuff come together and connect for you, so you walk out going, oh, I get it, but I'm really trying hard, so just give me some grace, all right? Give, give me some grace. This is where we're going to start today. Uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. One of the distinctives of Christianity is our view that God reveals himself. You don't have to go on a vision quest or smoke some peyote or, you know, smoke some ganja to get closer to God. God is not known by any human instrument or any human ability. God is known by self-disclosure. This is what we call revelation. Revelation. It's like how, like if you have kids and your kids are like all into something they're not supposed to be into or, you, or a dog or a cat. And they're like all into something and you can sneak up behind them and they don't even know you're there. You go, hey! Then they go, ah! 
Kids go, dogs go, ah! cats go, whatever. <laughs> right? But, but you can do, and because you are only known by the self-disclosure, because they don't even know that you're there until you decide to disclose yourself. Now, God doesn't scare us, but a lot of times when God shows up throughout the course of history, people do get very, very scared. God goes, calm down, it, it's okay, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to help you out. So, we believe God reveals himself in two, spe- two specific ways. Number one is called general revelation. General revelation, that God reveals himself by what he has created. Uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible uh, attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. That is general revelation through creation. The other one is what is called specific or special revelation. This is a fancy way of saying that God intervenes to make his will and his knowledge known that would not otherwise be known through general revelation. And so special revelation is things like miracles, angels, prophets, visions, dreams, inspirations, the Spirit's guidance. Most importantly, though, it's in the person and ministry of Jesus. Uh, Today, special revelation is given mainly through the scriptures. Language is employed for you and I because of our limited capacity, not any deficiency in God's character. Uh, special revelation is representative, we believe, exclusively in the scriptures. And it's important because God talks about himself to us in the scriptures, our relationship with him, our relationship to others, the nature of being image bearers of God. One commentator says it like this. Special revelation is special because it is written revelation with the special purpose of examining why man was created, what man is to do, what impairs man, and what is God's solution for this impairment. Kind of really cool. That's what it's supposed to do for us. And this is important for what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about this term and concept of the Trinity. The Trinity. It's like, oh my goodness, you lost me just saying the word. I, I know. Special revelation is what enables us to know and understand God as a triune God. One God that exists in three persons. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates man and he speaks in plural. Genesis one twenty six, he says, let us make man in our image. Now, for Christians, we look at the totality of the scriptures, and we see this as the beginning of our understanding of the Trinity. When God makes us, he makes us male and female. He makes us to live in community with one another. And don't mistake me here when I say this, but in a divine way, and I've always got to be careful how I say this. You don't think I'm like some nut or some like hippie or something, but God is male and female, father, mother. God is holy. God is not like us. God is one God, but he is more than one thing, if that kind of makes sense we always have this very poor analogy like god is like h2o well no god is like god right but but we got this h2o that you got you got a steam which is a vapor you got a liquid which is water you got ice which is a solid you know none of those things alone are h2o they all are h2o that's kind of the idea of the trinity judaism when it gets to genesis 126 doesn't know what to do with the words let us Lots of debate, lots of ink spilled on this, but the Trinity is really where you have to go with New Testament revelation. Today you will hear that all religions are alike. They all speak to the same God. We just have different cultural contexts. It's not true. Religions differ in their view of God and man. What marks us as different is we believe that God has revealed himself to us. Why does that matter? Because we will become like what we fall down to worship. If you worship Facebook fame, you will become like someone who wants Facebook fame. If you fall down to worship yourself, you will look more and more inward and more and more prideful and more and more selfish. If you fall down to worship Jesus, you will hopefully grow in your relationship with others and worship of God. 
See, we worship the one true God. Israel's great prayer, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Even the word one there, it's this word called echad, echad, and it means singularity and plurality. It speaks of like a cluster of grapes, like you have the grapes but one cluster. The same word is used when it talks of marriage, two people becoming one flesh, one echad, one flesh. Now, the word Trinity is actually coined in the second century, but it's a way to explain this entire idea in one term. It's what the scriptures are showing us. The Jews worshipped one true God in a true way. Christians worship still one true God in a true way, but we worship him in his triuneness. You know, in the case of the church, the church is worshipping God as a trinity long before the word ever came about. It's like, it's like my story. I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. The next year, I was asked to go to this camp as a leader of a bunch of junior hires. I have no idea why they would ask me to do that. I was a crazy nut, but, but, I, but, I, but I got to go. And, and when we were there, one of the speakers up front, they said, if you believe that Jesus is God, stand up. And everybody in the room stood up. And I was like, okay. And so I stood up, right? I, I didn't understand theology. All I knew is that Jesus saved me. That's, that's all I knew at that point. You know, so I didn't know all the nuances of theology. Then the speaker says this. If you can show where Jesus claimed to be God in the scriptures, stay standing up. Everybody sat down except for two people, and they were both wrong, which was awkward, right? <laughs> I mean, there's probably like 600 people in this room, and nobody could do it. Now, it's at that point I decided I want to know what I believe. I want to know all the things that are in the scriptures that God reveals himself, which kind of lands me before you guys today. So if you want to write, hey, email, that guy's name was Dewey Bertolini, you can send it to him and just say, hey, you know, I can't believe he did this to us. Anyway, today I can show you from the scriptures where Jesus claims divinity, where he accepts worship. I can show you the places where the Holy Spirit is called God. I can show you the places where the Father is very clearly called God, Trinity. But the term isn't there because it's really, it was really just accepted in the early church. I mean, Paul never sought to explain the Trinity, but he constantly refers to it. In the earliest writings we have by the Apostle Paul, I mean, he's referring to God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, Galatians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, Romans. It is clear that Paul sees each of them as distinct and yet divine. Even the word for Lord that he uses, it's the, it's the word that they use for Lord in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and Paul uses it of Jesus. Roman historian Pliny the Younger, he's this Roman official, and he's speaking about the nature of Christian worship. He is not a Christian himself, but looking in at Christian churches, he said that they gather to sing hymns to Christ as to God. Even non-Christians knew that believers worship Jesus as God. The early church was baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus said to do in Matthew 28 19. The Apostles' Creed contains the lines, I believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ's only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But as with anything, you know, people are always curious. They say, how does this work? How can this be? What does this triuneness actually mean? And many times it's hard to explain because sometimes non-Christians, they will say, well, you know, Christians made up the Trinity. And I always say, really? Made it up? I don't even understand it. If I was going to make it up, I would like make something I could explain really easily. Oh, this is how it is. Fits in my box. Isn't it perfect? But no, we can't really understand God. God is so much above us. And so we realize he has revelation given to us. Now, as I said, in the second century, the church father Tertullian, here's a picture of him. He coins the term Trinity to help clarify this. And so what he did is he uses an analogy taken from Roman legal practice. He himself was a lawyer. Now, many times the Roman Empire, you'd have the emperor at some point, he'd begin to share his power with his son. He would declare his son co-emperor. 
In these cases, the empire itself was not divided, but each of these guys had imperial authority over the land. Each was fully an emperor. Each was in full possession of imperial power, but the power itself was not divided. Each person was not the other person. So Tertullian says this, Divinity is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one divinity, only one God, just as there is only one empire. And so just as the empire and his son are both fully emperors without without creating more than one empire, so the Father, Son, and Spirit are fully divine without this resulting in more than one God. I know what you're thinking. The H2O example was way easier to understand. Right? Right? No? Okay. Whatever. This leads to a lot of words that we have in modern-day theology. Tertullian speaks of God as three persons, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit as one substance, and they all three partake in such a way that each has its fullness. So he coins the term Trinity, which goes back to looking at the word echad. Almost everybody in the church accepts Tertullian's explanation and analogy. Most in the church were already worshiping one true God as Father, Son, and Spirit anyway. Some people didn't even see the need to make a term for it. You know, like, well, why would you even make a term? Because he thought it would help people to understand better. Everybody's kind of okay with it. But, and there is always a but coming along, right? But in the 4th century, things begin to change. Constantine comes into power. He puts an end to all of the chaos and internal divisions within the Roman Empire. He favors Christianity because he says, I am a Christian. Persecution finally ends for Christians. Converts start flocking to churches. Oh, the emperor's a Christian? Well, I better be one too. So they all start flocking to the churches. And so preaching and teaching now become very important in these churches. It becomes an increasingly public event. Good and eloquent preachers are very hard to find. You know this. You're stuck with me, right? So one of these popular teachers is, is, is a guy named Arius. Here's a picture. And uh, this picture, I'll actually explain in a bit because it's really funny. It's, it's, it's really, it is, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, but uh, so one of these popular teachers is this guy named Arius. Uh, Arius became the focus of the debate that eventually in the end puts the whole idea of the Trinity to bed once and for all. Uh, Arius is probably the most famous heretic in Christian theology. Most of you have never heard of him, which just shows you how easily people are forgotten. Uh, he was born in Libya. He died in Constantinople. That is modern-day Istanbul. Uh, Arius held a prominent position in the church as a priest in Alexandria. And the whole controversy starts around him in 318 A.D. When, and what Arius did was he denies the eternalness, the eternal deity of Jesus and Jesus' equality with the Father. Now, in the beginning, he's simply trying to you know, help people understand, the common people, the idea of what the Trinity was and, and how that worked. But he became oversimplified, and he lowered Jesus in the midst of it. He argued that Jesus was created by the Father. Now, since the age of the apostles, Jesus has always been considered divine by his followers. And so there's just these questions about the precise relation to Jesus and the Godhead. That's, you know, the Trinity, the God and who he is. That had not been fully defined. But thanks to Arius, it was. Okay, it, it, it was. This whole thing erupts. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Arius did not believe that the Father and Son were of the same substance, that they were not, that he was not fully God. They were not the same substance. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul writes this, and this is one of the greatest statements in, in Scripture about the deity of Jesus, actually. Uh, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the, uh, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this then go talk, talks about how Jesus becomes a man. He empties himself. He dies on a cross for our sins. Now, the term form of God right there, it means in very nature of. It literally can translate as the same substance, 
the same substance. And Arius, you know, instead taught that he wasn't the same substance. Uh, Arius taught this, and I'm going to give you big words and weird sentence structure, but just go with me, okay? Arius taught the eternal, functional, and ontological subordination of the Son to the Father. Like, what, what that means in normal terms is that the Son was a lower being than the Father, According to Arius, the Son was created before time. He was not co-eternal with the Father. So he writes a letter to his disciple Eusebius, and Arius says this, Before he was begotten or created or appointed or established, he did not exist. And so he would claim that when the scriptures speak of Jesus as the Son of God, it's only a title of honor. It was, it was, Jesus was a person that God, God had lavished some grace upon. But he said this, he is not God truly, but by a participation in grace, he too is called God in name only. Now, there's a gathering of clergy in Alexandria at the time, and the question goes out, is the Son eternal as the Father? Now, there's a bishop in Alexandria. His name is Alexander. He was named after the city, not the city after him. And he said, yes, Jesus is eternal, just like the Father. Arius said no. So then the question goes out again, did Jesus exist from eternity, or was he created? And you may be wondering, why is this even a big deal? Church people argue about the weirdest stuff. I know we do. I know. But this is actually really important. Because if Jesus is not eternal, if Jesus is not God, then that would mean that the church has been worshiping a false god. The church has been worshiping an idol for centuries. And so the debate starts to grow very bitter. Arius insists on his position. Alexander finally excommunicates him as a heretic. But the conflict then spills out into the thousands of Christians in Alexandria. And what you, again, what you have to understand is that people are flooding to the churches. Constantine the emperor is a Christian. I'll be one too. Nobody really saw it as a big deal. I'll just believe that thing now. And you had all these people who believed in all these Greek and Romans gods, Zeus and Apollo and Demeter and, you know, gods and demigods and all these. And so it wasn't a stretch for them to go, oh, yeah, well, Jesus must be created by God. Yeah, I get that. Because they didn't understand Jewish monotheism. All these people were flooding into the churches, and no one was actually giving them any theology at that point because they were all just flooding in. Arius is a great speaker. He started to sway the masses. And they're like, how dare they excommunicate our favorite bishop? He's the only one we like listening to. Well, how dare they do that? And at one point, someone think it was, thinks it was Arius. They composed little ditties, and people took to the streets, and they chanted protest against Alexander's action. The scene's probably a lot like today when you see the demonstrations for or against abortion or immigration. People would march in the streets and have placards, and they would chant, there was when he was not. There was when he was not. What? There was when he was not. I know, it loses something in the translation. And the white boy doing it. I get it, all right? I, I get it. But, but it means, but it means, you know, eternity existed before the sun. The commotion gets so big that eventually the emperor takes notice of this. He sends his own bishop down, his most trusted advisor to try and be a mediator. And he comes back to the emperor Constantine. He's all, there is no way you're bringing these two sides together. There's no way possible. Constantine wanted the church to hold his empire together, much as emperor worship did before that. And so what he saw was the church was breaking apart, and he didn't want that to happen. So he pays for, and he calls a council for all of these bishops to get together. Uh, the Arius issue is one of the things they talked about, but they also talked about how people who had denied the faith during persecutions were welcomed back in. They talked about issues of church government, and Constantine did not tell them what to believe. He essentially got them together and said, you guys can't leave till you figure it out. 
He said, figure it out. That's what you're going to do. And so this gathering of these bishops takes place in 325 A.D. in a place called Nicaea. Over 300 bishops gather together. Uh, Athanasius, who's the leading defender of the church, probably the most prolific writer in the the, the 4th century of Christian Trinitarian doctrine, he sees a major flaw in Arius' writing, and he starts again to call it heresy. He actually called it the forerunner of the Antichrist. And this is what Athanasius says. He says, the son is other in kind in nature than creatures. That's us and created things. He belongs to the father's substance and is of the same nature as he. Now, Arius is not a bishop, so he can't actually go and, and talk unless he's invited in to this council. He had other people who followed him who, could, who were bishops and who could vote in this council. And so Eusebius, one of them, tried to talk about Arius' view and what that looked like. And people are like, we want Arius to come in and tell us himself what, what it actually represents. So he walks in, Arius comes in, and he starts to talk. And to say that people reacted negatively is totally an understatement. This picture I showed you in the beginning... Right here. So Arius is this guy over here. This guy right here on this side. Uh, this is Nicholas, Bishop of Myra. This is where we get St. Nicholas from. Okay? So Santa Claus. This right here is Santa Claus punching Arius in the face. This is what happened at the Council of Nicaea. Now, you've got to understand, Nicholas, he is the guy who helps the poor. He saves girls from brothels. He suffered for his faith. He prevented murders. He's one of the strongest voices in the early church for the deity of Jesus. Taylor Marshall writes this. He says, Arius was called upon to defend his position on the inferiority of Christ. St. Nicholas just couldn't listen to all of Arius' nonsense, and so he stood up and laid into Arius with his fist. So people write memes about this. You know, people who love church history, they write memes about these things. So here it is with the meme. Heretics punching them won't stop people from believing their lies, but it feels so good. (laughs) Right? Uh, There's another meme out there, and it says, I came to give presents to children and punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents. (laughs) If you like Batman, here's, here's one. I almost put this up at the very beginning so you guys would get it later. Santa slap, right? Uh, there's another meme that says Santa slapping heretics since 325 A.D. Now, uh, this wasn't cool with the council. It was like, yeah, slap Arius. It wasn't cool with the council. They actually stripped Nicholas of his vestments and his scriptures. They took his position away. But this is one of the things that actually led to his sainthood because it's one of the miracles that took place. Apparently, he's locked in jail, kind of like the apostles got locked in jails over time. And so he's in jail, and Jesus or an angel shows up to him, gives him his vestments and his scriptures back. And they're like, Okay, well, you're reinstated your position then. If Jesus says it, I'm not going to fight against that. Now, what set Nicholas and other people off? Arius tried to say they were worshiping a creature and not the creator. Arius was denying Jesus' own words in John 8, 58, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus takes the divine name of God by using the words I am. By saying I am, he is claiming eternality for himself. The early church said that it is very clear that we are worshiping Jesus as he has revealed himself to be, like God always reveals himself to be. The church believed that such bad doctrine has to be stopped before it spreads any further, and at this point, the Arian cause is essentially lost. Have you ever read or seen the movie The Da Vinci Code? In The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown says, you know, at this council, the church made Jesus divine by a very small vote. The church didn't vote on Jesus' divinity at the Council of Nicaea. It was already accepted. You know what they voted on? whether to allow Arius to continue to teach. And you know what the vote was? No. And it wasn't close. It was 300 to 2. 300 to 2. 
And the two were abstentions. They weren't even, yes, let's let Arius you know, continue to teach. They were abstentions. So essentially it was unanimous that no, he should not teach. Jesus was already thought of as divine since the scriptures were written. And after a whole lot of debate of how to make this clear, uh, the church said, we got it. we're going to write a creed. And this is going to show we reject Arius. And they had in this creed, they talked about the deity of Jesus. I'm going to read you this creed. It'll be on the screen behind me. But this is the Nicene Creed. It says this, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and of the life of the world to come. Amen. It says it very distinctly, right? I mean, they were very clear of what they wanted to do. You have to understand that the issue was always worship. It always comes down to worship, that Jesus himself received worship. And so is the church worshiping God or are they falling into idolatry? And the creed clearly rejects Arianism and insists on the equality of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, the debate wasn't actually over because they didn't, like, kill Arius or something, you know, so he's still out there. Which, again, leads to the guy I talked about before, Athanasius. You know, he becomes he's Bishop of Alexandria, and he makes it clear in the end that the question isn't, you know, what formula you subscribe to. What he insisted on was this, that we cannot owe our salvation our, our rebirth, our recreation in his words to a lesser being to whom we owe our creation. In his view, you know, the incarnation is like a king who comes and he visits a village. And after the, after the visit, no one in that village is ever the same. He says, in Jesus, God has visited our human village. Humankind is never going to be the same again. But this is only true if the one visiting our village is, like the creed says, God from God and light from light. Eventually, you get to 381 A.D., another council in Constantinople uh, joins together. The word Trinity is fully accepted everywhere by that point. Uh, God's substance, God is one substance in three persons. And since then, there's been a lot of you know, discussion over the Trinity throughout the years. Uh, Arianism has had a few revivals over the centuries. Most recently, Jehovah's Witnesses today uh, will claim that the Son is inferior to the Father and a lesser being than the Supremer Almighty God. But really, the controversy you know, has two conflicting worldviews. The first one is this. Arians proposed a God who is far above frail humanity. We believe that. We believe God is high and glorious and, and sits above all things. But he was like, okay, so God is like the emperor. And he doesn't really care what's going on with normal people and the aspirations of them. So God, you know, made this Jesus to come and he would care about us because God's just too high above us. He doesn't care. On the opposite view is the view that God is high and majestic and lifted up, but God also came in the person of Jesus. He comes to us, as John 1.14 says, he tabernacled, he lived among us. He died for our sins. He rose to bring us to new life because our God just doesn't stand far off. He comes to us in our pain because our God is good. And when the church worshiped, it was claiming that God is best known to us because of his own revelation to us. Peasants and slaves and laborers and kings and nobles, everyone could worship Jesus because he is our revealed king. 
You know, and so they're, they're clearly indicating in the early church that Jesus, this Jewish carpenter, humbled and poor as he was, stood high above the highest emperor. Now, last week somebody said, if you could just break it down and put it in a nutshell for me, you know, all this because there's so much history and stuff going on. If you could just, so here's my nutshell. If you've tuned out, tune back in. Here's the nutshell, okay? Jesus claimed to be God, and there is an intimate connection between salvation and the deity of Jesus. Okay, salvation is, is defined as being saved by God from God and his wrath. So God becomes both just and justifier. Only a divine Savior can bear the weight of God's wrath and atonement. Only Jesus, as God, can satisfy the enormous debt and penalty caused by human sin against God. No he- mere human being can bridge the gap between us and God. Only a divine Savior can pay the costly price of redeeming us from our bondage to sin and death. And this is why salvation rests in the infinite capacities of our Savior, Jesus. That is what all of this means. And this is what the early church was trying to get across. And this is what they were trying to help people remember. This is why at Element we preach Jesus. This is why we talk about him every week because he is high and lifted up. This is why we talk about communion every single week. Because in communion, we, we remember that our God, who is high above all things, did not just stay there. As Philippians 2 you know, says that, that he emptied himself and he came in the form of man to rescue and redeem and to save us because we were lost. Because we are lost. And when you break that cracker and you take communion, it reminds us of his body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because he doesn't stand far off. He came near to rescue and redeem and to save us. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back. You know, and if maybe you, know, you haven't even thought about the deity of Jesus and how majestic and amazing that is, if you still have some questions, you know, they may be like, don't ask me. Wait till Aaron's done. But you, know, you can talk to them or something, and, <laughs> and I'll come back and answer any questions you have after we're done. Um, what you have to understand, is that our salvation rests, as I said, in the infinite capacities of Jesus, our Savior. That's where it is. That's where it has to be. Because no mere creature could ever save us. And this is why God deemed to come and save us as his people. And so we remember that as we pray. Remember that in communion. I remember that uh, you guys you know, want to... Uh, give. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving so be part of that worship. And so we give you the opportunity to do that. And there's food and stuff in the back. Jeremiah walked out of the back a little bit ago, and he was like, they got cinnamon rolls. So apparently there's cinnamon rolls in the back. <laughs> you grab something to eat, meet some other people, uh, you know, maybe grab some of the sermon notes, and maybe sometime this week or tonight or today, maybe at the Agape, just sit around and maybe talk about some of these questions. And the importance of what it is that God has revealed himself as a triune God. Maybe some of the questions that even come along because of that and how it all works together. Because I guarantee you, even, even the, the revelation that God has given to us, forever in eternity will never plumb the depths of who God is. Ever. Ever. He is so great and glorious and magnificent, and yet he is also so good that he comes to rescue and save us. And we should be a people who in turn respond to that love that he has loved us with. That we would respond in ways that love and bless those around us. I mean, the, the amazing thing was the church tried over and over to reconcile with Arius, to bring him in, to continue to love on him. They didn't just say, oh, you're a heretic, let's burn you. 
I mean, those things kind of came later when Christians got worse. <laughs> but they always want to reconcile. And that's what we want to do. We want to reconcile. We want people to know who the one true God is and worship him in a true way, like the church always has. And so I would recommend to you that today you would spend some time maybe thinking about that and worshiping the one true God in a true way. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us more and more to understand who you are. Father, not that we will ever be able to fully understand the greatness and goodness of who you are. But even slivers of that cause us to stand in awe of your glory because you are so, so good. Jesus, we thank you for coming to save us as the holy, uncreated one of one substance with the Father and the Spirit, of one great God who has saved us. And I ask that our hearts would bow to the magnificence of who you are and what you continue to do. And I ask that we would worship you as you have revealed yourself. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.